1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. friends, and welcome to another episode of Recovery. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sarah Heath, and my other co-host is Justin Gentry, and we are so glad that you have found your way here. Recovery is a podcast for folks who have transitioned, whether you're transitioning out of ministry, whether you're thinking about transitioning out of ministry, whether you um, are transitioning out of a job that people just thought was really great, or you're maybe leaving the community that you've been a part of. Recovery is all about finding space for yourself here in the Recovery room, so whatever you need to recover from. So today I'm so excited because we have the fantastic Dr. Justin Wilford. Our boy is wicked smart, friends. Uh, Has two PhDs, one from UCLA and one from UCI. The first one is in social science and the other one is in health science. And all of that he has learned, he has expressed through the Yes Collective, which is really a group of folks who get together and work through internal family systems and emotional health, uh, doing coaching with all kinds of professionals and different people. He also has a heart and a passion for folks who are dealing with a childhood cancer. So Max Love Project is part of what he does with his incredible wife, Audra. So this conversation is one that I am so excited to share with you because it is about this idea of how do we gather after we have left church community? That is the number one thing we talk about in the Recovery Room Discord, but it's also what just everybody that I encounter who has gone through this transition of maybe no longer feeling like the every week church thing is for them, is where do I find community and how is community part of my life moving forward? So Justin has done a lot of studying on this, but also a lot of work around creating these spaces. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I could have had it go on forever. Just that's the side of me, the nerd part of me that just wants to talk about how our brains work and how we work in community. So I hope that you will love this conversation as much as I do. So with no further ado, here it is, our conversation with Justin Wilford. Friends, welcome to another episode of Recovery. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sarah, and this is my co-host. Justin, I did it as fast as I <laughs> <Justin>. can. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. As we explained earlier, this is a podcast for folks who have gone through any sort of life transition, whether that's you've tr- transitioned in your spiritual beliefs, whether it is that you were a pastor and now you need a little Recovery space. This is the room for you. This is the Recovery room. So however it is that you feel like you want to talk about what it means to transition from one thing to the other. This is the space for you. Today, we are very excited, and I'll have given a little bit of more of an intro about you, Justin, before this, but Justin Wilford, who is uh, someone who has worn a lot of hats in your day as far as studying people, uh, also uh, running an incredible uh, organization, and we're really excited to have you here. So Justin, we explain a little bit about yourself as a background. Uh, normally, what we say to people is, how long were you in? And what were you in for? Meaning how long were you in ministry and what you were in for? And we realized that sounds like prison. So you can define that however you want to as uh, someone who has been an academic 
whatever you want to share with our audience to get to know you. Yeah. How was I, in, how long was, yeah. When I, when I hear how, how long were you in, I, I think yeah. uh, of academia. So I, yeah, I was not in, I was never in ministry, although my dad was. So I, um, yeah, my dad was a pastor and uh, until I was in wow. first grade. So I oh, grew wow. up as a pastor's kid. And, um, but yeah, academia though would be my prison <laughs> escape. And I, yeah, I, I left academia in 2021 was the last class I taught, but there were like fits and starts of leaving academia for a long time. I got my first PhD <laughs> in 2010 in uh, geography. And then our son was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And then I just immediately fell out of love with geography and then decided I, I would, I was able to stay on and teach full time, but I, I, I knew I couldn't stay on, but I had to figure out something else to do. So like, a, I, I don't know, I, I decided to go back and get a second PhD and, and I just couldn't <laughs> leave academia. So I, I didn't up, know you were a doctor, doctor. <laughs> yeah. I ended up getting a second PhD, this one in public health with a focus on health behavior design and program design. And that's what I do now is I design uh, emotional health programs. Or that's, that's, really cool. that's one of incredible. the hats. Yeah, one of the hats that I, that I wear. And that's like sort of, so I met you through your wife. She was just sharing about the organization because one of the companies that I consult for is a coffee company that's associated with Max Love. Also just, you know, shout out to the Lost Bean and Max Love and for all that yes. you guys do. I know they're pretty great. But one of the things that was just so fascinating is, I don't know, within five minutes, your wife and I were talking about megachurch structures and how they do community. And I don't even know how it happened, but I don't normally share that I have this podcast or kind of that my side work is really helping clergy <laughs> figure out whether they want to stay or go, or even that I coach people. Like these are not the things I know all, every business person in the room is like, you should probably tell everyone that, but it was a, such an interesting experience to then hear your wife say, oh, you got to talk to my husband. He wrote about this idea of um, what churches, the the culture that they create and how they've affected. So you want to talk a little bit, I know it's been a while. You want to talk a little bit about like what you wrote your thesis on? Because it's fascinating. Yeah. So that was part of my first stint in graduate school. So my dissertation was on megachurches, U.S. megachurches in what I called at the time like post-suburban fringes of large metropolitan areas, and so these like these yeah these are just these like sprawling you know at, there's a bunch of different terms for these types of places ex exurbia like. Suburbia just wasn't accurate enough for a cultural geographer. But in in any case, the largest megachurches, at least at the time, and I was doing my research from started really in 2006 and then finished it up in 2010. So the largest megachurches at the time, most of them were in these post-suburban fringe, like Orange yeah. County or South Florida right. or, you know, um, the fringes of Chicago metropolitan area, Dallas and Houston and Atlanta and all these other places. So the question for me was, all right, so I saw the data on secularization and it was clear at the time and it is just as clear today that yep. we are in a secularizing 
trend. We call it the rise of the nuns uh, is one way to put it in N-O-N-E-S. Which sounds like a horror <laughs> film involving like nuns. Yeah. Rise of the nuns. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, the U.S. is just catching up to Europe, which has pretty much completely mm-hmm. secularized. And so the question for, for me as a cultural geographer was, how are these mega churches being so successful at a time when every other religious denomination mm-hmm. is declining? I mean, at the time, Catholicism was holding steady because of immigration, but like, you know, all of this decline. And so what are these mega churches doing and, and why are they doing it in these particular places? And so the, yeah, so my dissertation was really about how these megachurches make post-suburban life meaningful. Like how, mm-hmm. you know, how do they do it? And the conclusion was they basically find a way to, uh, I wish I had a better word for this, but recapitulate the fragmented, isolated, individualized environment that we live in, in these, you know, in places like Orange County or the, sub- the suburbs of Atlanta or South Florida. And so what this means for these megachurches is that the center church is not is no longer important because the center mm. city is no longer important. That uh, mm-hmm. it's actually the, the fragmented periphery, which is is where the real action is. And that's what's happening. And or that's I have to preface all, all this by saying my son was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 2011 and I dropped this stuff like mm-hmm. a hot potato. It was like I, I stopped. So this, so things, things may be very different today, but at the time, most of these mega churches focused their, their structure on small groups and other activities that were occurring at the periphery and the central campus was a place to, for these kind of flexible activities, um, more of a place to come for all these various activities, but when when I was doing the field work, um, or the ethnographic work, and I I attended one small group for an entire year, and I attended mm. a bunch of wow. other small groups, and I was shocked. People would come and they would say, uh, "Did anybody else go to the Sunday service? Because I missed it." And I I swear, like I'd say maybe three quarters of the people would be like, "Yeah, I missed it as well," but they would never miss their Tuesday night yeah. small group. Right. Yeah. So that's where yeah. the action is fascinating. Um, so that I think it's interesting. Yeah. It's if just hearing you describe that and it kind of feels very much like what a lot of suburbs do is like trying to recreate what cities actually were good at in a suburb. Like we got nothing to gather around. It's like beige boxes for miles. But like we're going to make this church and like that's what we're going to gather around and people like just naturally kind of gravitate toward it. Whereas like in like an actual city, you have like places and markets and things where you're bumping into people. You don't bump into anybody in a suburb, you know, because you're driving your car everywhere. No. So like it, like no. it, like no falsely, garage not falsely, up, but down. like right. kind of makes a space for people to bump into each other. And I've, and like I the places yeah. I yeah. live in Columbus, there's a couple different like outdoor malls that are like kind of like trying to create what a city may have looked like in the middle of what mm. used to be a cornfield. Right. And it's, it feels, yeah, it like feels fake, but it also feels normal. I don't know. It's, it's a very weird thing. And that's, to me, that's what I feel like mega churches are. It's like, <laughs> uh, uh, this, I guess this is real. Maybe. Yeah. What? <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, what I found. Well, Justin, oh, you yeah. said. Oh, sorry. I was going to say you dr- said you dropped all this, and yet a lot of what you do right now is gather people. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, you it, have it. it. Yeah. Like it started. Yeah. This this stuff started to come back. I. Um, I, yeah, going through the PhD program in public health and doing these mental health, mental and emotional health programs, it was just feeling dead to me. And it was like, I, I'm feeling called into something else here. I don't know what. Uh. And, and so the, yeah, in, in, in a sense that megachurch research is now coming back and is informing a lot of the work that I do now around how to how to create a sense of community on a really small scale. Like I, what I found fascinating about these small groups, and this is what I'm doing right now is they were very, uh, they ended up being very homogenous or there's a term in sociology called homophily, which is like birds Mm -hmm. of a feather flock together. And the, and this, this was actually encouraged. So I, interviewed uh, one small groups pastor. He was the pastor of the of uh, all the small groups. And he said, we encourage people to, I mean, as soon as they're in the church, find a small group, but then don't expect to stay with that small group. You, you go around and you find the small group until it you find the one that fits for you. Don't feel bad that you'll never go back to that one. You can leave halfway through. Just, you know, find the small group that, that, that fits hmm. you. And what I saw as I went around to these small groups was like, oh, wow, they are so like, so this small group, all the moms work in this small group, all the moms stay at home in this small group, everybody's retired and this, you know, and, and also there's like this small group. Oh, they're, they're like really this. I, like, I think I found the only maybe progressive, like politically progressive group in that church. And it was like, they all found each other and they were hmm. in this small group. And there's actually some research when I got into public health, I started to get, to get interested in this. And there's some research to suggest that we can change our health behaviors and make the transformation and changes that we want to make more easily when we do it in small groups of people who are more like us. Mm-hmm. That's so fascinating because I just came from, I, I run with a, a couple of run clubs and we just, the Long Beach half marathon and full marathon happened today. And uh, one of the things I get to do that I absolutely love is that I get to run the cheer station. So if I'm not running a race, then I love to cheer. And part of that is I had gone through the worst week of my life last year. This last week was really rough, but that was even worse. Like literally it was a country song. My dog was sick. My boyfriend had broken up with me and the transition fell out of my car, literally because they forgot to screw it in. And so I was having the worst week and I came, my run club, one of the run clubs that I run with, McKellar Run Club, they, uh, which is a beer run club, by the way, they were running, people were running this long and I happened to not be running. And I often am running the half marathon. So this time I was like, oh, I'll sign up for the cheer station. And I thought, I'm, I'm not, I'm feeling shitty, but I'm still going to show up for this. And so what I did was I just started, my friend just handed me the megaphone and I was just cheering for people very specifically like, Hey, you in the red shirt. Hey, like you're so incredible. And all the people that were with me, like started cheering for people, like, but aggressively specific, like you with the mustache, you're amazing. And like, and when people were able to finish the long, the, the full and the long. So this year I decided to actually just sign up as a cheerer. Right. So not, and so we did, I did the cheer station today. It was fantastic. So good for the heart. But we had uh, our after party at this incredible brewery. They had rented half of the brewery out to a goth. It was a 25th anniversary 
of a goth celebration. So imagine <laughs> half of your brewery are fit as hell people who've just finished <laughs> half and full marathons, all kinds of ethnicities. Like we are very diverse as far as eth- like ethnicity and socioeconomic. And then a bunch of goth kids that are celebrating something that's 25 years old. So goth people who are my age. And I used to listen to pretty intense punk rock at one point. So I like, I get this, like, but I was never goth. So this is a whole different, we're all coexisting at this brewery. So we are affinity groups. So imagine like a small group, we're affinity groups and I'm watching us and I'm thinking we're no different. We are no different in that the way that they're doing community for each other, the way that they're showing up for each other. And I would happen to be sitting with friends of mine who happen to be former permit parishioners. And I looked at it and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, just thinking about how we create church. Mm, yeah. Like we yeah. create yeah. when we cannot find it. Like if, if that's something that's like deep in our soul. And I think all of us, maybe I still think all mm-hmm. of us have that like drive to want to be around people that can sit with us in that way. Oh, yeah. Like I'm looking at a table of people. I know who this was their very first marathon and they're sitting together, just like feeling a certain way. And then I'm looking at a group of goth women who look like they would never in their life lift a weight because that would be like offensive to the whole look they've got like full goth makeup, like they're doing it. And we were coexisting in this like really beautiful way, but made me think through this idea of exactly what you're talking about. Just like we make these groups and, and for a long time in my own ministry, because we were a very progressive church, our groups were intentionally intergenerational. That's something I care a lot about. But I think there is this sense of there was some affinity. Mm-hmm. And even if the affinity was yeah. we live in the same neighborhood. So yes, we're diverse. But to live in a neighborhood this like this, there are certain things that must be true of you in some ways. So I'm fascinated by this yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, I, what I left that dissertation research with was an appreciation for, well, it, something in... Um, sociology and another uh, sociology where this this idea of Gemeinschaft, uh, which in um, sociology is this idea of this of this old yes of this old old village com- like the old village community and in sociology it's Gemeinschaft versus Gesellschaft, which is the modern bureaucratic institutional life that we live in. In Gemeinschaft, in like the old village world, right? Everyone, you know, going back hundreds of years, our ancestors, everyone they saw, everyone they knew, they shared the same religion and practices. Mm. I mean, everything was exactly the same. And this is how humans have lived, most humans, for, Mm. you know, 250,000 years. And that this diversity is actually pretty new. And what was striking about these small groups was like, oh, they're finding a way to bring like Gemeinschaft, like this old village world into this, you know, very, very modern, diverse, dense, dynamic life. And, and I, and I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still struck by that. And I think that there's something important about that. Like we do need, I I think we need these spaces of Gemeinschaft and so the question is, you know, can we make these as healthy as mm. possible that they're not? Right. Know, Cause it, it's hard. Like as a, as a progressive person who my initial reaction to something like oh, that totally. is to like yes. 
pull back. But then I think about my friends who have said like, sometimes it's just being in a black space is really important for me, Sarah. And while I would welcome you into a black space, I wouldn't welcome a lot of people into a black space. And for me, that feels fine. Like for me, it's like, oh yeah, you know, that makes sense to me. You need to like be around people that you can feel like you can let your guard down. And, but it's really hard when it feels like diversity is so important. So it's like, how do we, Mm -hmm. how do we balance these things in a way that is challenging? So I, I shouldn't be around people that I choose all the time, but here I am with people who can run a full and half marathon and the person, the percentage of the population that can do that is pretty small. So there is a self-selection in that, or like Justin, other Justin who does uh, CrossFit, that's a, that's a unique, but I would say that some of my friends, that's their community. Yeah. We've mentioned this on the show before. I think it's that, you know, cause people will leave a church and they'll be like, I, I, and they'll be like, I don't know how to have community. I don't know how to connect. And then I think when you break it down, the things you loved about church for a lot of people, it wasn't like the theology or the preaching or whatever. It was like that. <laughs> no one is like, oh my God, I just, the atonement theory. That, I just, that was the secret sauce. Every week I would hear their atonement theory. <laughs> can I, can I get they, some more? They adhered yeah, yeah. fully to the five points of Calvinism. That was what drew me in. Like, it's not that, yes. it's it's yes. your small group. So, like, if you can find no. that around, yes. like, brewing or fitness or mushrooms or whatever, like, you can, like, well, there's a lot of ways you could find community in mushrooms. I'm meaning foraging mushrooms. But, like, you know <laughs> yes, what I mean? Yes. Like, you, you can find that thing. You can find that thing amongst, like, people that have deconstructed their faith or have left church even. Like, I think yeah. it's that yeah. to me, that's yeah. the secret sauce that it wasn't that it was like you were gathering around this particular sermon or whatever. It was that you were gathering around something yeah. and we can find community in a lot of ways that way. Yeah. Well, I think what mega churches do or did really, really well is that the community had mm-hmm. levels to it. So I've got yes. my small group and it's homogenous. And I think there is something important about that. And but it's small. And it's like, I mean, these small groups were, you know, between eight and 10, maybe 12, like 12 was the, was the biggest one that I saw. So they're small, but 12 they, disciples, just <laughs> but then they, they, they come on the weekends and they're in these bigger, like they might be like in a men's group, which is like, like a hundred big. And then it's very diverse. And then they go to the, and then, you know, the, um, so the mega church that I spent the the vast majority of my time at was Saddleback Church, and so they had heard of it. Yeah, heard of it. they had. They, I I can't remember what it was now. What is it, like ten different services that like one yeah. one one was like ho- Hawaiian theme, one was hip hop theme, one was like punk rock. You know, they had all these different. So you could go, and there was a there. You know, you still it there was a certain amount of homogeneity there, but it was still more diverse. And so there were these different spaces for more diversity. And that's what I'm playing around with now, actually. Like I, I, I do a, I have a small group actually that I'm, that I do here in my home around internal family systems. I don't know if that brings about. Yeah, I listened to, so I got like, listen, let me tell you about starting to listen to your podcast and then going <laughs> down a whole rabbit. I have been internal family systeming. I listened because I, I just hopped on. I hopped on your train 
And I happened to hop on a train where you were speaking to one of your mentors and she was talking about internal family systems. Oh, Sue, yeah. And then, yes. And then I was like, oh, I should probably read about this. And then yeah. I just could not stop reading about yeah. it. So I have been, I, I get why you have, you know, it's, it's almost like the Enneagram thing where someone like internal family systems make sense yeah, yeah. by the way people handle and do their life. People who are yeah. interested in like doing the internal work. Yeah. It is incredible. So I've got an IFS group, you know, small IFS group. And then I do these ecstatic dances and like authentic relating what? stuff, which is bigger and it's totally diverse. And it's like, okay, this is, this is like, this is for everybody. And, um, can and you so, tell me a little bit about that ecstatic dance stuff? Yes. So tell me about, well, this. have, when you were younger, did I, did either of you go to raves? No, but I was a dancer for most of my life. So I had danced on dance teams and all that kind of stuff. And I would go to these free dance things. Like I would go, uh, I danced on an all black dance team when I was in seminary, which is a whole other story. But I would go to these parties. We went to these parties that were like fundraisers for us. And it was like a rave in, okay. in that like so many people in a house and everybody is dancing. It was really fascinating. Just free, As someone who's just a free form, just like going, it, going. Yeah, I, I couldn't I, do it. Yeah. Ah, yes. I would Justin. stand. I would stand at the edge and that, and I still think about that. I went to a women's conference last weekend and they played music, like a rave style music, very diverse crowd. The only thing that like connects all of us is we're female entrepreneurs. So it's at this conference and the music comes on and I'm looking around. What was interesting for me is I started looking at people of color and being like, are you guys going to do it? Cause if you're not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. Like, cause all these other like white women were like, dancing around. and I understand that I am now a middle-aged white woman. And I'm like, well, uh, because I was a dance team dancer for so long, I don't know what to do without choreography. And this insecurity comes out in me. Mm -hmm. I'm a classically trained yeah. dancer. I shouldn't oh, be, I, but I have so this many desire. people have that exact same experience. And then when they come to ecstatic dance, it's like, what that's if, why I'm interested yeah, in what, it. What is what it? What do I do now? I, yeah. Justin, did I you haven't gone to raves per se. I will say I really enjoyed the first like 15 minutes of the blade movie from the nineties was fantastic. <laughs> um, I have, okay. Okay. I have done like, I, I have done like <laughs> ecstatic you. dance adjacent things before and maybe rave adjacent things, but I, I haven't been to <laughs> a rave that? per se. <laughs> I've been to one. I literally stood on the wall and thought this is not for me. Oh, wow. Well, even though I'm someone who like, I dance. Sarah, I'm usually in the yeah, middle. So when I was, when I was 17, so this is back in 1994, I, one of my good friends, his mom was going through a midlife crisis and she was, she, she fell in with this group that was throwing raves. And so it. our friends, like we're 17 year old potheads and we're like, dude, let's go to a rave. We've never been to one. We've heard about this. So we Okay. Go. Children, just because you, so I need you to hear this. We are not saying drugs are good, but you might be able to get two PhDs mm -hmm. if you are so bad. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> You're proving so many moms wrong right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there was, and I, there will be more drugs in this story, but that's great. Yeah. So so we go and we're you know we're stoned as you know uh, as we were at that time, and um and and. None of we 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 had no idea what was going on. I mean, just ev everyone was just like letting loose and. And none of us knew, like, we were just shocked and like, what the hell? I, 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 you know, so we left after maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 
minutes or so. And then And you're with your friend's mom, too. Friend's be clear. mom and friends. No, she I think she had left and went to go party or went to go dance <laughs> next to the speakers or something. I she wasn't there. So we left and I was determined. I was like, guys, we got to go back, but we got to do this right. We've got to yes. eat a bunch of mushrooms, yes. and then we'll and then Just. we'll experience this. And one of the things for me growing up, and my dad was a Southern Baptist, so he like Southern Baptist. Where Justin? So yeah. So my, no one danced. You thought you were like I. I <laughs> You're I, like hips are locked. I, the They're only just locked. <laughs> the only time I've ever saw dancing was on MTV. Like that was the only time. So. So we go back and eat a bunch of uh, psychedelic mushrooms and I could dance. Like it was like, like the Holy spirit. He's like, like, Oh my gosh. All night long. And that, I mean, I think it was a really transformative moment in my life. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I had no idea. Like where did that come from? How I, and I spent the next couple of years yeah. trying to figure that out. And, and so I really loved rave culture after that for, Several it's years. so interesting because as you talked about that, my body went <sighs> like the idea <laughs> of being like I took a deep breath, like oh, to be able to now, not full worry disclosure, about- I had to go to drug rehab before I figured out that I could dance without all the without that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but but so ecstatic dance is it comes out of rave culture and it's basically like we are going to play some music and it's not always going to be the, you know, it's, it, it, I'll play like a little bit of just ambient classical or something like it will go in and out and it's just feel into your body. Welcome. What is here? Welcome. Whatever is here. Let the music move you. And if it's, and if you just feel like laying down on the ground, lay down on the ground. And, and then there's some authentic relating stuff as well that we bring into it, but it's really just, can you just let whatever is here just move through you? Yeah. I love that. I think I almost, okay. Sorry to get back on the religious track, but that's where no, we've been. I think about it's connected, even yeah. that that same body that for me was a classically ba- trained ballerina, didn't know what to do in so many spaces. And then I did dance team stuff. So like, I only know how, like, how to make like faces whenever I was dancing. Uh, and can, I can dance to the hip hop and R&B, but it like definitely has to be choreographed. And then I went to a, I moved to Mississippi when I was in high school. And so I went to this church called River of Life. And it was this super Pentecostal church ah. and there were people with flags. And I was just like, what the, f-? my mom's Catholic. My dad's United Church of Canada. We fell into the United Methodist community. So we are not, there's not a lot of free movement Rhythmic happening Christian in those spaces clapping. that I've been in. Like maybe, no, there's mm. like people maybe tapping their foot, like maybe. And so to see people moving their bodies, my first reaction was like, I don't feel safe. Like this feels weird. What are they doing? And then later it was like, what are they doing? Like, what does that feel like to feel that like freedom? And for a lot of people, like people have come on our show, even like um, we've had folks who worked like in uh, Bethel, the environment where it was just very like you get caught up in it. And Mike, who is this phenomenal guy who queer gentleman who like came out and like that community and work from he even was like, look, like, I don't even know what I think about faith, but I know that these experiences were not fully ado. They were like, it was not like this mass hysteria. And I don't know what to do with that mm. because 
I don't know what box to put that in now that I don't have those Ooh. constrained beliefs. Ooh. And so this is the kind of thing that I'm like super fascinated oh, yeah. with why mm -hmm. we gather around this stuff, why permission to move our body. Cause my first reaction is always like, I go to this conference every year. Justin's gone with me several times to wild goose and like, we'll see people like moving around. And my first reaction is to be that stupid, cool girl in high school that I used to be. That's like, mm -hmm. what are they even doing? <laughs> you know, like, and then, and then the next movement is like, they're like, oh, having fun. Let <laughs> <Why are> they... <laughs> it go. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Yeah. Well, I, oh man, a couple months ago, I, I saved this, uh, this, this tweet. I, I think we can still call it. Call They're them tweets. Tweets. Don't, um, don't that, let what them, else we call don't, don't let it change. No, yeah, it's a tweet. Yeah, That's what that no, is. No, I, yeah, right. <laughs> totally. But it was something to the effect that there is some ancestral European trauma living mm. in our hips that, yes. that is like constricting <laughs> us and that like we, <laughs> yeah. And, and they're like, we can, we can let it go. It's we can, called the we British can empire. That's and, what that is. Um, oh man. Well, <laughs> actually, actually uh, I did in one of my psychedelic experiences in the past had this, like this, kind of epiphany that we're like white European people are like have rhythm and are just as able to, 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 you know, have, have beats and flow and dance, but we are, we have been traumatized. We, we, we are like thousands of years mm -hmm. of traumatized, like first, like Roman, you know, the Romans beat us out of beat the, the like, pagan tribalism out of us. And then, you know, just all sorts of um, self-inflicted wounds, but like we mm -hmm. have this stuff in our bones. Like it's like, it is well, it's like, it a, is part of our heritage, but mm -hmm. it's just thousands of years in the past. It's, it's, you know, um, so I, I danced on this dancing for two years, dance black. And at the time it was really uncomfortable for me to call it dance black because I had always grown up in a very progressive setting. And so African-American was what I used to say all the time until I was in rehearsals one morning and actually it was super late at night. And there was this whole conversation that was happening with my teammates about one girl was Haitian and another girl was Caribbean. I'm an immigrant. So from Canada, but I was not in this conversation. because so I was like, I have, I'm, I'm outplayed here. I'm just going to sit here and listen. And then these other girls, and they were talking about, well, I like to be called African-American. I like to be called black in this conversation. And the one girl said, my people are not from Africa. They've never been to Africa. I'm not African-American. And it was such a like profound moment where I was like, I have labeled you something that you are not because I think I'm making space for you and you're asking me to call you something. Mm. So since then, I've been more comfortable calling it Dance Black. So I danced on Dance Black and we were, <laughs> it was always this awkward thing because my friend Halima, who is one of my favorite humans in the entire world, invited me to audition. Uh, what she did warn me about is that it was all undergrads and I had not danced in years. Uh, well, in like two years. And then, uh, so I show up and I'm like, was there another thing you wanted to tell me <laughs> all undergrads who happen to be? And she goes, you're fine. So um, she's like, you're fine. I'm not worried about you. So I was like, all right. So I was in this space for two years where teams, teams are a particular community, right? So if you're a dance team, late night rehearsals, all of us were at Duke university. So we're all academic. We're all working our asses off, undergrad, graduate school. But we had these shows a couple times a year. 
I will let you know that Dance Black shows sold out at a different rate than my ballerina shows showed out. My my parents were like, there is a line around the building, which was my first show I did with them, which is called Vibe or Visual Interpretation of Black Expression, which I'm sure if you're looking at me, you're thinking, wow. that's the show that Sarah started. Wow. It was fantastic. Some of the best gifts I've ever been given to learn about space making and mm. all these things. But there was this dance and I remember it was ludicrous. It was like, I love, I love like ludicrous rap. I love Atlanta rap. I love that. So I can rap every DMX song that was in that like five year period. Like it's the weirdest thing. I probably could have solved cancer if I had not had all of these lyrics stuck in my head, friends. But there's this one thing that's like bend over to the floor and touch your toes. And then you do this whole like pop-up thing. And it was this one sequence where West Coast and East Coast girls were like trying to outdance each other. And you're talking about your hips. So there was this particular hip roll that you had to do as you were bending over to your toes. And so it's like, oh. And so I kept doing it over and over again. And it was just like this, I was so tight. Mm, and yeah, yeah. my my friend Halima, who loves me, kept like swinging my hips. Like, you just isolate mm-hmm. your just isolate your hips. <laughs> like, it's not a physical finally, thing. It's a, it is yeah. an emotional thing. Yeah. So I finally yelled. Halima, I'm white. <laughs> and the whole room of 60 yeah. dancers went quiet. They used to understand we were all yeah. dancing in different sections. And one girl said, <laughs> she said it. Because yeah. no one, wow. no one had acknowledged it. And I said, if we don't acknowledge that I'm white, no one has said it. And I could, it, it was the weirdest thing where it like opened up. And I was like, and she goes, and you can still do this. <laughs> and I was like, good point. And I ended up nailing it and like the oh. whole room went nuts but it was like this release and it mm. sounds like a stupid movie that was made in the 90s like center stage like it sounds yes. so dumb no, but here i, I was I in I this saw space. that exact same scene in uh yeah <laughs> yeah right <laughs> One of those movies yeah right yeah. and you're sitting there and i thought i have spent so long worried about what i look like mm. on a dance floor i mean i was yeah in canada and the dance studios i grew up i was part of the united yeah so art art <laughs> We were part of the ballet school of Canada. Yeah. Like, so our little satellite campus, every couple of years since the time I was tiny, would go for exams at our mothership. And I learned to look and act and dance exactly like the dancer in front of me. Yes. So to be asked European to let my trauma. hips glow yeah, there, there was yeah. so frightening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if I got it wrong? Oh, my God. Yeah, well, that's part of, uh, so we have these five practices of conscious dance. I call it conscious mm-hmm. dance instead of ecstatic dance, but ecstatic dance is, is a slightly more popular term. But uh, the, in one of the practices, or yeah, one of the practices is notice judgment. Like you are going to have judgment. Mm-hmm. You're going to have judgment of yeah. yourself. You're going to have judgment of other people. You have judgment of the music. It's going to come up and it's don't don't push it away. Don't fight it. Just notice it. And then relax back into your heart. Like that's, that's mm. yeah. like there's, um, yeah, like I, it's really, um, yeah, it's part of this whole set of practices that I think are r- really important in what I'm calling a, like a post-church space. And so that, that's one of the things that I'm, trying to work towards is like what 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 would be a post-church 
space, a post-church community, a post-church church. Mm. And I think ecstatic dance would be a part of it. I think internal family systems would be a part of it. I think authentic relating would be a part of it. I wanted to continue this conversation, but I think we're going to take a brief break because I just remembered it. And we were so smart. Now we're kind of moving into the next thing. And so I think this is a good spot to have a quick break. And then, uh, then we'll get back to this conversation about what, um, what, what does it look like now? We've established that there's trauma and there's things. And so what is, what's the next thing kind of look like? So stick around and we'll be back. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth. And this podcast is just that here at the speaking in church podcast. We talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Friends, welcome back. It is uh, Liz. Our amazing editor can just decide when she's going to bring us back in from that one. Actually, <laughs> it is, it's such an interesting conversation to have around body trauma and this idea of our body keeps a score and also how do we live post-church. So many people I talk to say that church, the church world gave them interesting forms of mm-hmm. body trauma. For various reasons. So whether we were shamed because of purity culture, whether uh, the color of our body was not appropriate, apparently, for the community we were in, whatever it was, there is this body awareness. And then when we leave, we're given this space, like this space, Mm -hmm. and it can feel scary, right? Um, I was recently listening to someone coming out of post-purity culture and trying to figure out, like, what do we do with these bodies? So Justin, tell us a little bit about, like, what are you doing with bodies now that they're trying to figure out how well, to be in communities? So again? I start from a sociological perspective because that's the, I, so yeah, I mean, coming out of growing up in the church, I took a very long break. And so when I came back in, in uh, graduate school, it was like, okay, I, I want to see this through a, a research lens. Like I want to be as objective as possible. So I, through a sociological lens, I came to, I, I, I basically came to the same conclusion that Emile Durkheim, he's the, one of the founders of sociology did around religion, which is that religion does two things. It does it it binds people together. So in a community, uh, this is its its most important this most important function, and it does this through its other um, function, which is to give us tr- a sense of transcendence. And for Durkheim and other sociologists, transcendence is just simply lifting us out of our mundane, ordinary, individual self, and that when we do this in community it binds us together in a really strong way. Okay. Mm. So those, those are the, those are the two big things. Now, both of those things were chipped away at and eventually 
destroyed for a lot of people by modernity. So we can say modernity kind of starts somewhere in the 1500s or 1600s and slowly but surely this community, that Gemeinschaft that I mentioned before, gets chipped away as people get forced out of their old villages into cities and factories. And and then this sense of transcendence goes in a bunch of different ways, gets chipped away. And we don't have these spaces, the rituals for a collective transcendence that really binds us together. So we lose these, these two things. And we have very poor substitutes for them today. Things like sporting events or concerts. And so if anybody has been to a sporting event where they're rooting for the home team and they see something important to happen and everybody cheers at once, there's an electricity there. That's like, whoo, whoa, it's really, mm-hmm. really big. That's collective effervescence. Like that is, or that's what Emil Durkheim called collective effervescence. That's, that's that transcendence in a community and it binds us together in like really important ways. And so and then what do we do when it, those two combine? When we've got Taylor Swift oh going to God, a sporting event. Oh my God, I know, right? Because I actually had this conversation, <laughs> like at this depth, I know it sounds ridiculous to talk about it at this level, but I'm a nerd, we know this. I am so fascinated by the Swifty culture because I think it is a searching oh, for totally. something. Well, right? Mm-hmm. In this yeah. person, and I don't necessarily think it's, Taylor Swift is wonderful, I think a very talented woman, but it's not her. There is something about going to this community, people go to these concerts, they cannot even see no, her, right. guys. She no, is she's on a screen. so yeah. far away. It has nothing to do with her in some ways. What it is, is being together, singing these lyrics, switching bracelets. It's a very diverse and um, interesting space. It's a very non-judgmental space. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What well, but it? it we get that in in so many other musical subcultures. I mean, you said that you were Beyonce. really into punk rock. I know, like it's the same. You know, I was, the same yeah. same thing there. The the community rave culture is the same way. So we get mm-hmm. the we are we are still drawn into this community and transcendence and this mm-hmm. collective effervescence. But it's but it's it's done in really subpar ways. But from a from like an academic lens, this stuff is hardwired into us that homo sapiens became this like apex predator species because we are able to flexibly coordinate in large numbers in ways that no other species Mm -hmm. can and so we took over the globe and we we've killed everything you know and and the things that are alive are alive (laughs) because we choose them to be right or um and so this drive for community and transcendence is hardwired. Like, like we, it, it's, it's not a choice. Like we can, I mean, we can, we can choose to not have community and transcendence, but our lives wither. And so right now it's like, okay, well, I can either go to some ossified religious community and try to get something out of that. Or I, I can go to a Taylor Swift concert or, you know, my local football team or all the different things that I'm trying to cobble together. And so what would it look like if we were to create mm. something intentional that, that takes this need for community and transcendence seriously, but also adds a third thing? So in, in my post-church uh, vision, it's not just community and transcendence that we need in the modern world that we've lost. Um, it's this third thing that I'm calling personal growth. And in the modern world, we don't have a choice 
or personal growth is not mm. optional. We can, of course, reject it and stay small. But if we do, we are going to lose out on career options, on, uh, you know, uh, our social world is going to dwindle. We are going to feel paranoid and confused at what's happening in the world. And I mean, I, I think a lot of the political right and Trumpism is really, it's the outgrowth of people rejecting personal growth. And so we, we need spaces that can give us all three. And I break down personal growth into two different things that I, we could talk about if we want to get into the weeds, but I think we need all three. I think we can't just do two out of three and, and, and expect to flourish and connect in a diverse mm. and dynamic way. And if you do one, it's not going to cover it. Like I think about the communities we've gone to that are just about personal growth and you it's just kind of go like, what is this? Like, this is fine. <laughs> oh, Right. Right. Well, I, right. Think, like, I think the church tries to do it sometimes with it like men's accountability thing. groups, but it's there's like this impersonal um, nature to it that it's like I, I I don't know like I've never been in an accountability group that felt good or that I actually grew. It's just mostly mm. like confessing that you masturbated that week and that you're a bad oh, person gosh. and you know someone cries and then it's like. So it's like this, it's trying to do personal growth, but it's like, mm, nope, nope. Yeah. This is. Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll just real quickly, I'll, I'll talk, talk about, I, I, I talk about personal growth as first being psychological mm -hmm. development. And I, and I use a theory by a Harvard developmental psychologist that basically explains how our, how, as we psychologically develop our worlds get bigger and bigger and we have yeah. more, yep. more accurate and effective uh, relationship mm -hmm. with the world as we yeah. grow. Um, so, so that would be one, one part of the growth. And then the other part of the growth is emotional healing. And I think mm -hmm. every single person who grows up in the modern world leaves childhood with emotional wounds. And we do not because our parents are unusual or anything, but because we did not evolve to grow up in isolated nuclear families, like two, two parents. I mean, if you're lucky, you have two parents, but that's not enough because right. we evolved to grow up in a, a, a clan of like 50 to a hundred and there's going to be aunts and cousins and, and it does not all fall on mom and dad. And, and it's intergenerational. Mm, yes, that's the, totally. That's the piece that I think for whatever, however you feel about church, one of the reasons that I continued to fight for it as a space making thing is I think particularly here. And I think Justin, you might be able to relate to that having lived here for a little bit. There's a sense that if you're past 25, you might as well just pack <laughs> it up or like, or people are only around people their own age. So um, because of the spaces that we you know, work in. So if you're a startup person, you're probably working around people in their early thirties, all these things. Right. But the problem is, is we find that people get more and more disheartened. They think life is over. What about me? Why am I not where I should be? So you look around people that are older than me have houses. I don't not going to have a house by the time of yours. If you aren't in relationship with people who are different than you age-wise, you don't realize that there's cycles mm. that are normal. Mm -hmm. 
and normalizing growing older and being happy in being older and like the like not yearning for the younger self. Um, I think one of the greatest gifts church gave me is some of my best friends are in their 80s. Wow. And so I don't believe that my life is done because wow. I'm in my 40s. You know what I mean? There's just this beautiful, I mean, I joke around about being old, but I understand that there this, like, are generational differences though that like, uh, so in the, in the IFS small group that I have, we like, there are two older people in the group and then everyone um, else is, is closer to my age, but it, I mean, they're, they're really loving the group because no one in their, their age is interested in emotional healing and IFS and doing any of this. No, they weren't allowed to be. And, and, and so, yeah, there are, there are these generational differences. Like my parents, like, you know, would have want nothing to do with it. Yeah. I just find it, I find it fascinating. Like how in some ways, some, at least the churches that I was involved in that I had to leave, like create ways to insulate themselves from personal growth by that definition. You know, like all the world's getting bigger and bigger. It's getting scarier and scarier. Let's shrink it down, you know, and let's, and, and, you know, I think I'm, I'm not going to get into this. I'm not making a statement about it, but I find the conflict in Israel and Palestine very interesting because it's a very complex narrative, but in a lot of churches, it gets shrunk down to like, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. And don't dare make me think beyond that. And, and, and that kind of thinking fundamentally, that's, I think that's why a lot of people are listening to this podcast because they tried to peek around that kind of thinking or try to grow a little bit beyond that. And they got their wrist slapped really hard by folks that were like, nope, this, this is not for this okay, place. Is not so for that. Justin, yeah, thank you. I, so I, so I do feel called to, to just go a little bit into the weeds then on this psychological mm-hmm. development because yeah. We love what, the weeds. Get in here with what, us. Because <laughs> I, 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 I feel one of the things that I feel so called into around this post-church work is that we don't have institutions that are going to help us grow in this, in this or going to hold us through these really important growth stages. So if anybody's interested in this, I'll be referencing this Harvard psychologist. He's still alive, but he's no longer actively doing work. His name is Robert Keegan. And so he has these five stages of growth, but the third stage is the important one. And and this is a stage that everybody reaches basically in adolescence. He calls it social mind. And it's a stage basically where we are seeing the world through the lens of our community, of our group. What is right? What is wrong? What should I be doing? What shouldn't I be doing? All these these things, we we are seeing it through the lens of our group. And of course, this makes sense as, you know, adolescence, like uh, what's the cool thing to wear? What's the cool thing to listen to? You know, so we're, we're, so we're learning how to do this. And for 99.99% of human history, that's all we needed. Like if we could just get to this social mind uh, stage and just see the world through the lens of our community, we're good. Like we don't need anything else. But as modernity comes, comes in now, we're, 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 we're pushed into what Keegan calls stage four, which is a, he calls the self-authoring mind. And in this stage four, we need what happens in this transition is we start to see, oh, my community and all of the rules and all of the things that are good and bad and all that stuff is just one arbitrary 
way of viewing the world amongst like an infinite variety. And so now that I'm seeing that it's just an arbitrary way to see the world, I now need to construct what Keegan calls mental institutions or frameworks, philosophies, ways of seeing the world that are that 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 have some objective justification like is it good to masturbate like mm-hmm. or is it bad or you know how, how what should i think about same sex marriage and so now we need to start to think about these these things and then get philosophies and frameworks and ideologies and essentially build a self-identity. In stage three, our self-identity is given to us by the group that we grew up in or just the community that we're in. And in stage four, we have to build our own self-identity. And so one of the things that really motivates me is that we don't have institutions that are really set up for, for this transition from stage three to stage four. We have universities, I, I, I think, are the best thing that we have. And I don't think they're particularly good at that, having been in them for decades. And so what would it be like to create institutions that are intentional around, around shepherding people through from stage three to stage four to build these identities, to build these institutions with an, with an eye also to stage five, where we realize that identities are, identities are mm-hmm. fluid. And that no framework or philosophy or ideology can can cover everything that we need to be. uh, We need to be humble and pragmatic about um, about these things. And so what would an institution look like that that would that would hold people as they move through these personal growth stages? I I keep thinking about Father Richard Rohr, who I don't know if you've ever heard of him, uh, Justin. Yeah, he I got to sit with him for a while. And he talks a lot about, uh, he wrote a book called Falling Upward a long time ago that talks about like the one stage of life and the second stage of life in some ways and that not everyone gets a chance to move into this. But it is when our boxes become bigger and it is absolutely disorienting. And so we're dealing for us, um, for this show, for the folks who listen to it, for the community that's online in our Discord community, they know what that disharmony feels because there aren't people who are shepherding them. So they're looking for folks to shepherd us through this like transformation of yeah. self and, and, and the expectation that that could happen yeah. so that it doesn't feel and like, even our language oh my gosh, isn't everything great is lost. either because like I've, yes. like for me, like my experience in the communities that I was in that did not support any kind of LGBTQIA equality at all. Like I experience it as growth in myself personally to be like, okay, now I've moved to a place where I absolutely accept and affirm those folks. But when you use a word like growth, it's like insulting to the people you're talking to. Cause they're like, you know, like, or like, oh, I've moved beyond this. Mm. Like, well, like, you know, and, and, and it's not inaccurate <laughs> yeah. for me to yeah. say it, but there's not, we don't even have a lot of good words that don't have this like moral value attached to them in some ways that that it makes the conversation hard. Now I do think that everyone should move on this path on that journey, but it's also like when you're trying to help people along and they're (laughs) insulted the whole way, it's like, I I don't, I don't even know how, what, what does an institution look like? We don't even have good language even sometimes to describe or me leaving ministry was growth, but like, I have family members that were very proud of the fact that I was a pastor. And so it's hard for me to even describe this journey when Mm -hmm. it's like, yep, this was great, 
but I've moved beyond it. Uh, but I haven't moved beyond you because, you know, so it's like a hard, it's hard to even describe. Yeah. It's beyond hard. is a hard word, right? Oh, yeah. It's a, yeah. Yeah. Right, no, it's when, like a, and when I talk about this, this post-church stuff, and when I think about creating it, it's really for people who are moving into it. Like this is not a evangelical thing of like trying to go to those you know, if, if people are happy in their church community, like God bless go and, and, you know, but Mm. there are so many people who, I mean, we have the rise of the nuns, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so how, how are, how are we going to hold these? How are, I mean, us, like, I'm looking for a community for myself. And, and, and so I'm trying to build what I would want. Yeah, so I totally hear you, Justin, because that's a problem that I have had in the past with my family. Um, and yeah, mm. so it's it, now I'm at a place where, like, hey, you know, you go and be happy. Like, this is like, I'm like, I'm bless, not, yeah, this. like, I'm not doing the ecstatic dance for my grandma or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you know, for like <laughs> uncle, you know, so and so. Like, like, this is yeah. not for you. I've, uh, I've tried to tell, like, particularly, like, like, I have another podcast called Go Home Bible, You're Drunk where it's similar to like drunk history meets reading the Bible and it's, and we have oh, a good time, cool. but it, like, it's offensive. Like I've, I've talked to my, my mom, maybe listening to this. I don't know. It's like, it like, she talks about how it offends her and I'm like, it's not for you. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like, like if <laughs> yeah. the name alone offends <laughs> you, trust me, you don't want to listen, but I'm, yeah, yeah. Like if this is like a this yeah, is like a self weeding out. Yeah, attracts the right people and it repels the right people and it seems to work. And so like it, it is. And I don't know if it's a generational thing or what, but it's like I think like folks are starting to learn. Like there, I create some things in some spaces that are not for everyone. You know, like it's just for me or just for the, yeah. Well, it's that first level, right? That Justin was talking about earlier, where it's like. You know, it's that internal, like that first affinity group. First, you got to find the people that this is, thing is for before sometimes you step into that, like diverse. And sometimes you and, have I, and I also right? have a belief uh, that I, I, I think is somewhat sociologically informed that that this is the direction that modern society is going in. Like we don't have another option here like it, it, i i i think staying in 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 closed historically religious communities it's like if that's what's working for you good on you but like this is not the future like this is we we have to find a way to live in a world that is going to help the 8 billion people on this planet mm-hmm. flourish together and it's not the institutions that have been around for thousands of years. It's going to be something different. Well, that is an incredible note to end on, <laughs> guys. I just looked at the time. Well, so can this I say one, one, one thing as, as, something, as something hopeful is that this, these institutions are not here. And so we have a chance to build mm-hmm. them. Like that, that's what's so exciting. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I love that. Uh, and it's, and it's going to feel weird, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's going to feel a little weird. Like this is a new thing and it feels a little bit wrong at first because we're trying something new. But Justin, where can folks find your work? 
the, your podcast that, by the way, guys, just be ready to go down a rabbit hole. I took a lot of notes. Where can people find your work and what would you like to share with the folks that are yeah, uh, so, that uh So a few of the hats that I wear then, uh, you can find me at justinwilford.com. And so I do um, IFS coaching and I do a lot of I- IFS stuff. So you can find that stuff there. I work with a bunch of therapists on an emotional health platform called Yes Collective. And so we do online courses and we're starting to do retreats and different pop-up things. And Yes Collective actually is like we're it's like a kind of a testing ground for some post-church stuff. And then if you're interested in supporting a, a wonderful childhood cancer nonprofit, my wife and I founded Maxwell Project. We're based in Orange County, but we do stuff also here in Georgia as well. So you can find us at maxillproject.org. Yes Collective is at yescollective.co. And then I'm at justinwilford.com. That's great. Thank you so much for this time. I literally could have we just have to bring you back on and we're going to talk about where this is headed because I think it's incredible. So thanks friends for listening to another episode of recovery. We hope that you have a fantastic week and stick around in the end for the inspiring quote lyric. Sometimes just a saying, just stick around for the end. We're glad that you're here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you are enjoying the conversations you hear on RevCovery, you can continue the conversation with us and many more incredible people in the RevCovery room on Discord. To access our Discord, please join our Patreon to become part of the RevCovery room community. You can join for as little as $4 a month, and this helps us produce the show, as well as gives you access to the community resources. Check it out at www.patreon.com RevCovery. We know that not everyone is able to financially support the show, but there are lots of ways to support us, including giving us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to like and subscribe across all social media. Recovery Room is our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle, so you can find us there to keep the conversation going. Now on to some final thoughts and this week's poem. Friends, thanks so much for sticking around to the end of the show so that you could hear the quote, the music lyric, whatever it might be. Um, I'm so grateful that you made time for this. As I was thinking through this conversation, I was <laughs> laughing because I never thought that we'd get to a place of talking about ecstatic dance or just even the ways that we move our body. I definitely think I have been formed by my passion for movement and dance. And I was thinking about this quote and I tried to look it up and I had no idea that this quote was from Frederick Nietzsche. So there you go. And that's this. Those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. I think for many of us who have changed our communities or many of us who kind of are trying out new things, it can feel like everyone around us thinks we're a bit insane. And for those of us who are dancers, we often feel a little bit insane. Although I would argue that all of us are dancers. So for whatever you're up to this week, I hope that you will move your body in whatever way feels good to you. Thanks for joining us, and I hope that you will check out the work that Justin has done, and I'm so grateful that we had this time together. So have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. 
It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.